But one of the things that John Hodgman talks about a lot on his podcast, something that he comes back to is that nostalgia is a toxic impulse, right? Mm. And I try to be mindful of like not living too much in like, well, this was my heyday or this was the best time because I still want to think that like the most impactful and the best times are still ahead of me and they're the ones that I'm crafting in this present moment versus thinking that like I peaked because of this one experience. Patrick Fisher is the executive director of Erie Arts and Culture. Welcome to Flagship Stories, Episode 6. My name is Chris Lantinen, and I'm a podcaster and work in digital media for the Edinburgh Beehive. Hello, I am Nick Warren. I am the managing editor for the Erie Reader. He was only source for news, arts, and culture, only local one at least. Uh, Nick, the April edition of that previously mentioned Erie Reader is all about innovation and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. What can people find in it? And I guess where can they find it too? We are available at many, many hundreds of locations. Free, uh, you know, usually I say go to a country fair. We're there. We're Wegmans, Giant Eagle, et cetera. Um, but uh, yeah, this, this one is our I2E issue, which stands for Innovation Industry and Entrepreneurship. I missed industry. I'm yeah, sorry. Yes, so that's okay. I almost <laughs> did too. Uh, but. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Patrick kind of uh, even hinted at this concept, but what I like about this issue right now is that it really it, it's it's very county wide. We talk about the stuff going on in Corey with the the catch with the broadband internet. We talk about Gerard's Main Street uh, article by Aaron Phillips. There, I I talk about the upcoming like Presque Isle Gateway project. Then we then we're downtown talking about Paca. Uh, all all over the place. So. Lots of yeah. all positive developments. Yes, absolutely. It's a very positive issue. Yeah, mm. definitely the piece that I was going to recognize was the Corey one and all the good work that's being done mm-hmm. um, in that region by people like Brody Howard and Chuck Gray and others, um, along with how they're expanding uh, like training opportunities for you know nearby uh, individuals and residents, and obviously the efforts to bring better internet to that area, mm-hmm. um, and that's by Ben Spagan. So we'll recognize him there. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the Corey article. Uh, so let's talk about this discussion with Patrick, because I think it was a really good one. He's a, yeah. you know, you've known him for a long time, so do oh, you yeah. have anything to add to help oh, introduce yeah. Yeah, Patrick? Yeah, I mean, me, me, and, me and Patrick, uh, yeah, whose, whose number is still saved as Patrick X. Fisher uh, in my phone, but uh, we grew up in the hardcore scene together, um, and... Yeah, it's it's been great to track his uh, success in different different stories of his life. Uh, you know, now now we meet again. It's great. Now you meet again, and I'm sure you've been. I'm sure uh, he's a great source for eerie reader articles. And oh yeah, yeah. Hitting on the art. Very scene well and spoken. All that. And yeah. Um, one thing he actually asked us at the end of the interview was, "When was the last time we were wowed in terms of something artistic downtown?" And so. My response was the mural on Methodist Towers, which I saw when I was running downtown. And as I as I explained to him, I'm a relative newcomer to downtown, so you might be asking yourself, how could you, how could that be something recent to somebody? But when well, you're a newcomer, like it really if, is. If you if you're driving one way or somewhere like or running one way, you know you would miss it. It is a, oh you re- yeah. If you're just driving down you know 12th, you mm-hmm. you do miss it. Yeah. You know unless you take a back road. So um, running was the way I literally ran into it. Um, I didn't know the story of the resident at yeah, all, really. who the mural was of. So I'm going to let Patrick take it from here. Excellent. 
We did that project in 2019 with Elio, who is a Dominican painter who lives in Miami. Uh, and we had two Erie-based artists serve as like understudies on that project to learn how to paint murals. Uh, but the way that came to be is we had an opportunity to bring an international artist in. Uh, he is very focused on um, painting portraits of people in the community. So we wanted to really focus on Methodist Towers because I think that oftentimes when you think of um, communities like Methodist Towers, there's a lot of times people can be pushed to the margins either because their age, because of their um, income level, whether or not they're living with a disability. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we were communicating that the future of Erie also holds space for, for everybody of every identity. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I did was I met with a bunch of residents of Methodist Towers and took everybody's photo, probably took two dozen or more folks photos and sent them down to Elio and he's he selected who he wanted to paint and he chose Rudy and uh, then they ended up doing a feature article on Rudy and how he lost his sight and a story of redemption and his own personal struggles um, but you know the thing that was really remarkable about that is the way Rudy like he, He's blind, so he's never seen the mural, but the way he would light up every day that he came out to talk about it because people were hollering at him on the street, like, I see you getting painted, like, you know, and, and uh, by no means do I think that that mural has resolved any of the challenges that Rudy faces as a senior citizen, as a black man, as a person living below the poverty level, as an individual with disability. But I hope that it has, to some extent, created a sense that I belong here, mm -hmm. regardless of the development that is occurring around me, regardless of whether or not they're taking my disability into consideration and how I navigate sidewalks and if they're following best practices related to ADA and all of these other things. I hope that it communicated to him that he belongs here and that Erie will hold space for everybody of every identity uh, and every lived experience. But that is one of the mean, the murals that I think is most meaningful to me as well. Yeah, yeah. that's a great one. Running down, yeah, running downtown, you run into that mural, and I, I you know, I, I didn't know the story of that guy. So, um, hearing that is obviously deepens it even more. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's it's quite impressive. It's gigantic. <laughs> we we I had, don't know how they did it. <laughs> we were supposed to do so with that mural in particular. It was supposed to go all the way up, but we couldn't find lifts here in Erie that oh, went that high. Okay. okay. Um, but the the remarkable thing about Elio is he painted that entirely with a four inch brush. So he was working only with That's a four-inch brush, and he was also working only with primary colors and mixed all of the colors himself. So he had he had uh, a couple buckets of primary colors and then on-site just mixed everything Whoa. to the color that he wanted it and did it all with a four-inch brush. Because that, that portrait's what, like seven stories? I think like it goes up to eight or nine stories, yeah, but the building in total I think is 11, 11 stories. Yeah. And Nick, uh, you had your own response of what wowed you. So let's hear from you on that. Uh, my answer on Tuesday, I got to see a rehearsal for the Seishi Dance Academy. Just a quick note that I pronounce Seishi Dance Academy like Seishi. And I am sorry. And let's just picture that I didn't do that. Thank you. And their upcoming show. And that was extremely impressive. Yeah, you know, the last thing I saw from them I thought was really exciting as well because I'm I'm a big believer in if you want to um, 
evolve to the future of the arts in our community, you have to create participatory experiences. Mm -hmm. You have to invite the audience in on helping shape the experience right, right. because folks that are under a certain age, they don't want to just be a passive audience member. They want to be active. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that Say She did as an open house in the wintertime was they gave audience members, they broke audiences up into three sections. So like a middle, a left, and a right. And uh, each section had a dancer sitting in front of them and each section had a flashlight. And one, you had to oh, cool. share that flashlight with other people in your section and pass it around. But you shining the light on or having the light off determined whether or not the dancer was dancing. Oh, that's great. So, and they were recording it. So each time they do that, it's going to be different based off of mm -hmm. how you're shining the light, when you're shining the light, who's shining the light, et cetera. And I thought that that was a really great way to bring the audience in on the experience. So I definitely expect a lot more wow moments from Seichi kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're doing some good, really cool things. I wanted to run that all up top uh, just in case people didn't make it all the way to the end because it was a cool part of the discussion and guests usually don't ask us questions. So. Yeah. So just, you know, to hear more from us. And we us, had answers too. Yeah. <laughs> just to hear more from us. So that's why I wanted to we run it We just like the sound top. of our own voices. So. All right. So let's get to this talk with Patrick. And uh, yeah, if you are not subscribed to the podcast, make sure you check us out on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. So Stitcher we'll, yet? Are we on Stitcher? Oh, we're on Stitcher, I'm <laughs> sure. We're on iHeart. We're on, we're on uh, probably Pandora. Anchor. We're on, we're on all, yeah, oh, definitely Anchor. Oh. That's what we're hosting. Yeah, right. Uh, so let's let Patrick take it from here and enjoy the conversation. I'm going to start uh, super early on with you because it seems like the establishment of some of your principles starts pretty early on. So growing up in Conkerton, um, it's a small town. Where are you finding those bits of culture that leads to like the straight edge lifestyle and to more al alternative lifestyles, if I can use that broad of a term? Where are those bits of culture being picked up? Not in Cochranton. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I grew up uh, with, a, a, I think, a pretty strong appreciation for the natural environment. Um, there really wasn't a lot to do after school in the community I grew up in, but always spent time along French Creek and running along trails and, and getting into trouble, you know, in miscellaneous ways. But there really wasn't any access to after-school programming. There wasn't any significant access to in-school programming. So really it was, it was a, an incredibly homogeneous town with uh, a void of culture and a void of, of creativity in many ways. Thankfully for me, my extended family lives here in Erie, uh, and I remember going to my cousin Donna's wedding. She was getting married to Joe from uh, the Throwbacks, and their wedding was at Forward Hall. And I was, I think, 14, maybe 15 at the time. And uh, while I was in Ford Hall, I saw all these like handmade flyers for shows that were coming up. And I have a friend, uh, Lee, who was a year older than I was and who had his driver's license and just said, hey, we should go check this out. And at that point in time, I was like definitely a new metal kid. I was into corn and, and all that like <laughs> rap rock. But it was also like to me, it's what it felt like a pushback to the community and the society that I was growing up in and being raised in in Cochranton. It was how I got my angst and anger out. Um, so 
went to the first show up at Ford Hall that I had a flyer for and then just was hooked afterwards. And pretty much after that, I think every Friday and Saturday were either in Edinburgh or in Erie for shows mm-hmm. and really quickly came. I can, I can vouch for that. <laughs> yeah, and, and really came, quickly came to recognize the fact that beyond just music, it was a platform for a lot of really in-depth and broad conversations. And this was stuff that I wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to. And it was at a pretty critical point in my personal development because a lot of my friends were going the opposite direction. Uh, in a community like Cochranton, there's not much to do. So kids get involved with things pretty early. So drugs, alcohol, et cetera. And so while they were going down that path, I found this other path that that I ended up navigating down and, and really did inform a lot of the values and ideals and principles that I still carry today at 37. Tell us about some of those memorable uh, hangout forward hall shows. What were the lineups like? What were uh. the ones that stick out to you? You know, it's interesting because I don't think a lot of folks in Erie recognize the fact that Erie really was a stopover city for a lot of oh, really absolutely. significant musical acts. And Especially not even, in the hardcore scene. Well, even Especially, before that, yeah. right? Like oh, even yeah. thinking about like the Field 70s. House, like yeah, yeah. I mean, we really had a remarkable music scene and it was because of the existence of venues, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the, the... Being able to play on like a Sunday or a Monday. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, you're, you're, you have an off date after Cleveland or mm-hmm. Buffalo and it just makes sense to cut that mm-hmm. drive down a little bit. And, you know, it's funny because I think that when I got into punk and hardcore and indie rock, it was just on the precipice of becoming something that was going to be played on MTV. So, you you know, it was before mm-hmm. the days of Headbangers Ball really focusing on hardcore or bands like, you know, Panic at the Disco being on uh, MTV Total Request Live yeah. or whatever. So it was like for five bucks, you could see some of these bands that were like... Oh yeah. A few years later, like well, quite huge. significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you saw them at a stage in Edinburgh or Erie and then you went yeah. and got pizza or yeah. uh like a you, My Chemical Romance or yeah, something like yeah. playing second at yeah. Ford Hall. Yeah. And it was really like I don't know, it was it felt like you were on the cusp of something, something that was like exciting and yet to be kind of fully recognized. I mean, still very much subculture and counterculture. And then years later, you know, seeing those bands have shirts at Hot Topic, some of which were designed (laughs) by Erie-based designers like Dave Quiggle. Um, So that was all just like, I don't know, it was really exciting. It felt like there was a lot of energy that was surrounding around that. But also, you know, more than any of the bands that I remember, though I remember some really, really great shows, I just remember having so much fun with friends. You know, I really feel like I would have had a different experience if I entered into the community like post-2006 because I feel like that's when this like jock mentality really started to find its way into the music scene and you saw a lot more um, aggression and a lot more like crew mentality, a lot more fights Mm -hmm. breaking out, which led to venues closing. So I think that I came in at like what I would say was a really fantastic time to be a 15-year-old and entering into it because it was fun and it was goofy and it was aggressive, (laughs) but everybody was friends. Fast forward, you know, a handful of years later and it was a much different feel. Right, definitely. Yeah, that yeah, the the kind of dem- demarcation. I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's about the time when that when hardcore kind of made that switch, at least locally, to being like, well, this isn't really a place I want to be at. Yeah, I don't want to get kicked in the teeth. No. It's not really yeah. an enjoyable moment for yeah. me. And you recognize that, like, with anything where there's bodies slamming against bodies, like, there's always oh, going to be an accident. I mean, we've seen plenty of violence before that. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, like I've, I've I've seen crazy stuff happen, but it wasn't the norm. It was. It, it was, certainly. You know, it was. 
oh, I remember that. Oh, geez, that guy was crazy. Yeah, and I and I felt like the the scene kind of self-governed itself, right? Like, I think that the local community did a really good job of saying, like, we don't stand for this. This isn't how we, mm-hmm. uh, this isn't how we operate. But then it did become a weekly occurrence, an occurrence at every show. The show would have to stop because something was right, happening. Right. Not to stay on this topic for too long, but I think something you said about, like, overhearing conversations or participating directly in conversations that, again, would form your principles was interesting to me. Is that something that's happening outside the show beforehand? Like, I guess, how are you getting into those conversations? Well, I think that that's why, like, for me, art to this day even is still a form of activism. Like, my role as an arts administrator is really looking at how does art impact social change. And I think that a lot of the bands that I was seeing at that age, especially within the world of hardcore, used their time on stage to talk about the things that they were really passionate about, whether they were vegan, whether they were straight edge. I remember hanging out with Die Young, which was a hardcore band from Texas, and they stayed at my house. And I remember talking with them about why they don't shop at Walmart and why they're okay mm-hmm. with shoplifting from big box stores right, right. And, and all of these other like uh, really anti-consumerism um, philosophies and ideals. And it felt like everybody was actively talking or actively reading or actively informing themselves around the social issues that were most relevant or pertinent to them. So yes, it did occur socially, I think, before and after the shows, but I think the main place that it occurred was uh, on the stage or even in their merch. I remember bands that would print shirts that were, you know, anti-factory farming or the liner notes that were in their CD covers, you know, they would actually have direct quotes or statements or even sound clips leading into or out of songs as intros and outros, Mm. um, you know, that were really just pointed at a really specific, um, you know, social, economical, environmental, racial uh, issues. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was very overt. And it, it really, it really like clued me into like so many different things. You know, a lot of them just kind of went over my head sometimes, but a lot of them stayed with me. Yeah, I think that it like, in me, it really like spurred this just curiosity, this right. curiosity to know more. I didn't necessarily go, okay, just because one person said this, like <laughs> I need to adopt this as my right. belief. But I do remember the first time I tried to go vegan, I think I was in, I think I was in eighth or ninth grade. And I just remember going, okay, I'm, I'm vegan now. And, uh, <laughs> just declaring it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in truth, I was vegetarian. I wasn't vegan because I didn't think at that time to like, when I would go to school and get a, a school lunch and maybe I just got vegetables on, on a hoagie roll as opposed to like meat on a hoagie <laughs> yeah. roll, I didn't actually ask them like, hey, what are the ingredients yeah. in that hoagie <laughs> roll? Yeah. Uh, but I do remember the first time that I was like, yep, I'm vegan now uh, as a result of what I was hearing on stage and actually having that make sense to me and resonate with me and be like, yeah, I, I like animals. I don't want to see them in these environments. And I, again, going back to the imagery of some of the merchandise, oh, man. you know, like seeing factory farms on, on t-shirts and you're like, yeah, I can't ignore that. It's like right there in front of yeah. me. When I read about your journey between college and like 2016, which is when you land at the Cultural Council in Jacksonville, right? It's really a question for me of, okay, like, what do I ask about first? Because there's so many interesting, like, stops and paths on this journey that you took. So I'm going to phrase it like this to be a little bit different. Which of your life stops do you find yourself revisiting these days? Like, either purposefully or just when you're wandering in thought? Like, what are you thinking back on as, like, not just an interesting time, but, like, moments where 
again, shaped you on your journey or led to a way of thinking or something like that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I listen to the Judge John Hodgman podcast a lot, and I really nice. love reading John Hodgman. I'm in one of those episodes. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. We'll have to Way talk about when. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that John Hodgman talks about a lot on his podcast, something that he comes back to is that nostalgia is a toxic impulse, right? Mm. And I try to be mindful of like not living too much in like, well, this was my heyday or this was the best time because I still want to think that like the most impactful and the best times are still ahead of me and they're the ones that I'm crafting in this present moment versus thinking that like I peaked because of this one experience. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think that one of the things I've really, really, really struggled with over the last almost four years of being back in Erie is I feel like my comfort zone is bigger than Erie. And the times in my life that I have felt the best is when I'm just and just far enough outside of my comfort zone to feel like pushed and stimulated, but not so far outside of it that I feel overwhelmed. And I've had a really hard time identifying moments for that since I've been back. Mm -hmm. uh, so to some extent, I think that folks like me or, or that are equipped with whatever my mindset is or whatever, I think we sometimes need to be in survival mode in order to feel like our most authentic self. There was a time after I graduated college that I thought I was going to go to the Peace Corps, so I got rid of everything. Only had enough that fit into my rucksack. Didn't even have a car at that point in my life. And then decided, I don't, I don't want to go to the Peace Corps. I'm not, I'm not aligned with them uh, ideologically. But I lived houseless for nine months in Erie with just a book bag. And, you know, couch surfed and house sat and camped out and did all of these other things. And I look back now and I'm like, how the heck did I do that? <laughs> yeah. You know, or when I left Alaska, I spent uh, almost a year living out of a van with my dog. And, and I think I could do that again. Uh, but I, I do think that oftentimes the moments when I own the least and I'm the freest is when I also feel the most alive. And, and those are the moments that I, I continuously try to get back to is like looking at what am I carrying now? What am I owning now? That's not really serving me in any way. And how can I let go of it so that I can have that lightness, that, that feeling of being free and not kind of bogged down by objects and items and, and mm -hmm. other things. So, you know, I, I really do think that my non-traditional pathway in life has, has served me quite well. I don't think it would serve everybody, but to, to go back to the, the question at hand, I'd say those moments where I was really challenging myself and living outside of my comfort zone are, are the ones that I think uh, I look to recreate most in my future. Oh, that's a good way of putting it, recreating, recreating those feelings, I think, is a good way of approaching it. Well, let's talk about something that would be way out of my comfort zone and probably was your survival mode, was Alaska and everything you did there. So I was reading about life in a dry cabin, which if people don't know, and maybe you can correct me. It's basically no running water, right? And this brings us to that chapter of your life. All the tips and warnings that I read about dry cabins brought me to a couple conclusions. One, you have to live very deliberately, it seems like, in that situation. And also, you have to have a lot of patience. Am I right in both of those assumptions? Yeah, and I think that that's like a really great way of kind of going back to what I just said about like the times that I've felt, I guess, the most of live is when I'm living like deliberately and patiently, right? And I think that like, how do you tap into that without putting yourself in extreme circumstances? 
I haven't identified that. So I've <laughs> always put myself in semi-extreme circumstances. I will say that I think Alaska has been sensationalized a lot, especially through um, t television series and other things. Like I think life in Alaska is not as grueling as people make it out to be. You know, I had a lot of comforts in Alaska, you know, in my cabin, I didn't have internet. I didn't have television. You know, I didn't have running water. I had to use an outhouse at, you know, 55 and 65 below zero, which is certainly an interesting experience. I had a wood stove, so I had to, you know, there is a degree of being self-reliant in those scenarios. Um, but at the same time, if I didn't feel like chopping wood, I could have easily called someone to deliver it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that for me, I felt the most, I'd say connected to my body, when I lived in Alaska, because you rely on your body for so much, right? Chopping the wood, feeling the actual like temperature variants that are there. But I also had like a really great garden when I was there. So like all my summer produce, I was eating directly out of that garden. So, you know, I think that by no means was I like challenged in a survival mode when I lived in Alaska. Uh, but I do think that I had to live or I, I opted to live more deliberately when I was there. Mm -hmm. I think, was it Into the Wild? Is that the book? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the ones that seems like it's sensationalized the experience a bit and seemingly from the protagonist's point of view that he, like, that was like his end goal mm -hmm. was to go out there and live in this sort of lifestyle. And that was, that was only maybe 15 miles, 20 miles outside of Fairbanks. And I remember yeah. my first, no, it was my third trip up to Alaska, uh, tried to hike out to that bus with some friends and we just got a really late start in the day. And it also wasn't a good time of the year because the water was rushing like way too, uh, harshly. But I do have friends that went out to that bus and visited that bus. The bus has since been removed um, just mm -hmm. because it did become this kind of icon that people were unsafely making journeys to. And, you know, every year, or every couple years, someone would have to be rescued in the process. Right. <laughs> um, but I, you know, the, the story of Alexander Supertramp, I think, is something that a lot of us can kind of resonate with this idea of like, who is your authentic self? How do you live authentically? How do you live deliberately? Um, but at the same time, like not doing something that's you're just is so outside of the realm of like what you're prepared for or what you truly know, right? Like that idea of the comfort zone and like the healthy degree outside of the comfort mm -hmm. zone versus like the unrealistic degree outside of mm -hmm. the comfort zone. And I think for him, he just really uh, wasn't prepared to take that that massive of a step. So I want to get to Jacksonville because that will obviously transition us to what you're doing now in Erie. The way you frame it is that it was, you know, that stop was you truly identifying what you wanted to do as a career. So I'm wondering, like, how did you get that job without having done the arts administration life before? Was it the marketing experience that you got from the airline industry? And I believe in Alaska, too, right? You got some marketing experience. Was well, it all of that that led you there? Or what was kind of the stuff? Not at all. I mean, <laughs> when I worked for the airlines here in Erie, it's a small enough airport that you do everything, right? Mm -hmm. From checking people in to, you know, unloading and loading to Did you work at the Erie airport? Yeah, yeah. for okay, seven years. Okay. Uh, but it's really hard to say, like, here's the marketable skills that came from this job other than, like, time management, right? Uh, and then when I moved up to Alaska, it's, it's also really hard to summarize what I did there on a resume because the family that I worked for, when they hired me, they had four different companies, but all serviced oil and gas. And they hired me to find ways to diversify outside of that. So essentially, they'd get, like, an idea and go, hey, look into this and then do your research. So I spent almost an entire year researching growing peony flowers in the state of Alaska because – about a year before I came up there, 
together, they realized that this could be a potential cash crop. And they and the family I worked for had about 700 acres of land. And they said, of this 700 acres, figure out the best five acres to grow on and how to do it and what we should grow. Because with peonies too, you have to plan three years in advance because essentially it takes that long for the flower to mature before you actually have a product that you can sell. And with things like weddings, et cetera, you're having to go, well, what are the trends three years out, right? Mm -hmm. So in that process, it's like you're utilizing so many different soft skills, but how do you summarize it in a, in a resume or in a cover letter? Did you did you have experience? None. With, okay. None. Like in the, nope. I, I, I don't want to say flower industry. Zero. Like what do we call it? <laughs> but I would fly down to like Washington and Oregon and meet with growers down there. I'd meet with the university in Fairbanks who was doing a lot of like research around this area. It was a lot of like research and development and, and looking at like sunlight and uh, exposure and the, you know, moisture in the soil and what type of soil it was and all of these create, and again, like also trends. So it was like, that was one thing that I spent about a year on. The other thing that I spent about a year on was they purchased a manufacturing company that made industrial anti-slip product mm -hmm. and looking at, well, how do you optimize that, right? How do you reduce redundancies in a manufacturing setting? How do you better source your materials? Um, how do you think about what the, the system of operations should look like? How do you tap into a market outside of Alaska, right? So like, again, how do you summarize all of that, especially knowing that you have no previous experience mm -hmm. in that? So when I made the decision to exit the for-profit sector and enter into the nonprofit sector, I knew there was a few things that I really wanted to focus on. I wanted to focus predominantly on things that have a large community impact, or something that leads to like personal development, not my own personal development, but the personal development of whoever is engaging with it. And when I was looking at opportunities, I really thought that the arts were a central opportunity for that. I'd also say that I've always naturally gravitated towards the arts and working with artists, even though I didn't have access to it, right? So when I was in Alaska, a lot of my friends were applying for grants. I'd help them write their grants to the Rasmussen Foundation. A lot of them needed recorded materials to support their grant and they didn't have any. So we launched a almost like a tiny desk concert series in my cabin where we would record three original songs that they would perform in my cabin. So they had that to then use in their grant applications. When I lived in West Palm Beach, Right after high school, I worked as an apprentice, for, or not an apprentice, but an intern for a record label, which wound up signing two eerie bands, one of which was Nyx. Yeah. Uh, so I've always gravitated towards working with artists and, and kind of have seen myself as like a facilitator and a connector and a capacity builder. But when I started to apply for jobs, so the way I got down to Jacksonville is I had friends down there. I was kind of missing this sense of community. So I decided to just go down there for a while and use that as a place to apply for jobs. But most of the jobs I was looking at were like the Pacific Northwest. So I, I got a job, uh, a, a job at this just like architectural salvage place because I was able-bodied and I could lift things and didn't mind getting sweaty. So I was working um, just to put money back in my pocket at this architectural salvage place. And then on my free time, going to the coffee shop and, and applying for jobs. And man, I started to feel so dejected because I probably spent three months looking for jobs, applying every day, hundreds, not even getting a call back, right? Because again, my resume wasn't strong. I mean, I felt like I was always reinforcing some really um, important soft skills in the work that I did, 
But one, I had no previous nonprofit experience. Two, I didn't work in the arts. Three, seemingly no relationship between the industries that I had worked in or the roles that I held. And four, I only had my my bachelor's degree. It's not like I had any advanced degrees or anything. So it's like I wasn't, I didn't necessarily feel that marketable. Got to a point where the cultural council was hiring an office manager. And essentially with an office manager, like your role is just to make sure that coffee's made. People are greeted as they walk in the door, right? Like mm -hmm. it's it's entry level at best. I applied for the job, got an interview like literally that afternoon and was hired on the spot. And my caveat for accepting the position was so long as I do the duties and responsibilities as outlined on the job description, can I take initiative? Yeah, Will yeah. that be something that is either rewarded or punished or thwarted? And my executive director at the time said, take as much initiative as you want. And I jumped into that with two feet and eventually ended up within the next couple Had months. <laughs> yeah, within the next couple months, like essentially wasn't even doing the work of the office manager anymore because we kind of realized there was no need for an office manager right, right. and and really focused on how do you build community. And at the time, I would say that the Cultural Council of Greater Jacksonville had lost sight of its mission. I think that they only saw themselves predominantly in service to either the city of Jacksonville or to the large institutions within the city. Mm -hmm. There really was no focus on being of service to the smaller organizations and certainly no focus on being in service to the artists. And, and I think that I stepped in. And when I first started going there, you know, I am heavily tattooed. I had long hair at the time. I was showing up in art spaces and, you know, cut off shorts and sleeveless t-shirts and always had my camera. And people just thought I was an artist. Nobody knew that I worked for the cultural council. So when I asked them, hey, what's your opinion around the cultural council? They would speak to me honestly about <laughs> it because they didn't know I was part of it yet. And, and I really took that feedback seriously and started to change the culture of the agency as a result of it. One of the things, though, that stemmed out of that is you can create a lot of conflict between your coworkers and yourself. What was happening is publicly, the cultural council was receiving a lot of criticism from the artists in our community, from the smaller organizations in our community. But Patrick Fisher was receiving a lot of praise. And that can create a really challenging internal dynamic. Mm. especially when you're trying to encourage change within a structure that has no incentive to change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, it was a, a difficult environment to work in, to be perfectly honest with you. I felt, um, I felt quickly adopted by the community. Um, I'm a firm believer of putting your body where your beliefs are and being proximate to the people that you're serving. So much like I am here in Erie, I was everywhere. I did not ask people to meet me where I was at. I went to people and met them where they were at. And I also showed up in the community to support things that were completely outside of the arts and then had conversations about, well, how can the arts support and assist you in the work that you're doing? So that's how I found myself in, in Jacksonville and specifically working for the Cultural Council. And, you know, I didn't plan on leaving that role anytime soon, but I was reading this book by a, a writer, Peter Kagiyama, who, who wrote Love Where You Live. And essentially, like some of the closing sentiment of that book was, you'll never know a sense of fulfillment quite like nurturing the soil that sprouted you. And I thought about like, I left Erie, not because I hated Erie, but because I loved Erie and I couldn't figure out pathways to participate. I felt like, you know, when I was in my early and mid and late 20s, other than the music scene, I couldn't figure out how to introduce social change in our community. I had started up groups like Erie Direct Action. 
um, and and had organized critical mass bike rides and tried to introduce ideas of kind of like immediate direct action within your community to get the attention of your elected officials and community leaders. But again, it just felt like if if it wasn't roar on the shore, if it wasn't, you know, loud motorcycles and block parties with washed up 90s and 80s musicians, nobody cared, you know, and, and I left because I was frustrated because I wanted to participate. So reading that sentiment and thinking about the skills that I've developed after I left Erie, you know, really asking myself, well, should I return to Erie? Should I bring these skills back to serve the community at large? And thinking about the fact that we are at this really critical juncture in Erie's history where we either evolve or we continue to digress to a point of irrelevance. And I do believe that the arts play an important role in that evolution. Uh, so I decided to come back. There's just so many, so many paths to take here. <laughs> that was such an expansive and good answer. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I'm in the digital marketing field, so I wanted to ask about, I guess I just saw like a very skillful approach to like content marketing very early on for you. And especially, I mean, it starts in Jacksonville, but I see that you're still doing it today through, um, uh, who, who is the new marketing person? That you just Jade had? Mitchell? Mm -hmm. Well, Jade Mitchell's been with us for- is it Nat, I believe. Nat Richmond yes. just joined oh, us. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, but of course, Jade has done great work too. But what I'm trying to say is I saw that you conducted like 100 plus interviews with artists in Jacksonville and also that you were able to boost their website viewership by so much. I assume there was a direct relation between those two actions. Yeah. But I guess how do you see content marketing um, as a weapon in what you're currently doing in Erie and how have you kind of took, taken the success from Jacksonville and transferred it here? For me, it's all about impact storytelling. Okay. Um, yeah. I, and I would say that that even started in, uh, Alaska and, and, you know, I often think about like, what has my lifetime experience been with social media? And I was introduced to social media mm -hmm. at an early age through things like, which was first the makeout club and then yep. Friendster and live journal and all of these other things. But like the way I used live journal, I think was a way that you weren't intended to use live journal. Same with Tumblr when that became the thing, which for me, it was always long format writing. Um, and even when I was traveling on the road or traveling um, when I worked for the airlines, I always did long format writing that was accompanied with photos. Because when I looked at the, the folks that I really enjoyed reading, you know, people like Henry Rollins or Henry Miller or um, Ernest Hemingway, they were all always these kind of essays of their own lived experiences, everyday life, no matter how mundane. So I've always really enjoyed writing and storytelling through both the written word and, and photos and videos. And when I was in Alaska working for the manufacturing company, it's like, well, how do you tell the story of a product? And how do you make that how do you make people recognize they need this product if they've never heard this product? Right, right. So really focusing on telling the story of the product and trying to capture some of the momentum that existed at that time around Alaska and the excitement of Alaska and not only made in USA, but made in Alaska, right? Mm -hmm. And if it's made in Alaska, <laughs> like, you know, it's tough. Mm -hmm. So like tapping into that and, you know, doing all of the, the digital marketing for them. Again, I don't have any background or experience in di digital marketing. It was just like, Let's just jump in with both feet and try it. And then going down to conferences and conventions and trying to tell that story directly in person. And then that translated to Jacksonville as well. You know, I, when I first got to Jacksonville and I looked at the website, I, the first thing I recognized was 
this website does not reflect the community of Jacksonville. You know, Jacksonville is almost a minority majority city and you only saw white folks on the website. Mm -hmm. And really thinking about, okay, if you can't afford to build the website, I'll rebuild it. I've never built a website before, <laughs> but, you know, thanks to things like Weebly, it made it a lot easier to do. And and really thinking through, like, how do you use that as a platform to communicate who you believe yourself to be in service to? And, and then looking at the back end to say, okay, well, where are people going on the website? What are the pages we assume have the most traffic when really they don't? And if we're not getting the traffic into our website that we want, how do we start getting it? And for me, it was telling the story of artists. I... I have – what I had adopted when I was down in Jacksonville and we're trying to get to that point here in Erie was an 80-20 rule. 80% of everything that we published was about our sector and yep. the community and only 20% was pointing back to us. So those efforts of doing a, a weekly roundup of the different events that were there, the uh, Friday 10 questions with, with artists and arts administrators and culture bearers, right? All of these things were about bringing people to our website by better shining a light on the folks in our community that are doing interesting work. And, you know, those are things that we're now working to, to implement here. I will say, like, I have a great team within that department. You know, I think that what Jade has accomplished over the last, you know, two and a half years with Erie Arts and Culture is really remarkable. I think the way that she has helped elevate and evolve the brand identity and to, to create kind of a consistent feel and tone around our marketing, I think our impact reports in particular are a really great example of, of you know, what Jade brings to the table as a, as a creative director. Having Nat on the team only takes us one step further now because what Jade's able to accomplish digitally, I think Nat's able to do on a person-to-person -person level. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that we've been missing is not all marketing should be occurring just online, right? And I think that also with Nat comes um, a really uh, great connection with a lot of the um, creative individuals within our community. Mm -hmm. So thinking about how do we implement those interviews and everything else um, at an internal level now that we have the capacity that allows us to do it. I think that that was one of the challenges that we've experienced over the last three and a half years is how does our internal capacity match up with our aspirations? We have a ton of aspirations that we haven't been able to tap into yet just because we haven't had the internal capacity or bandwidth to do it. So even those things like the 80-20 rule, like just figuring out like how do we have the capacity to tell stories beyond our own, knowing that it requires collecting those stories and right, writing right. those stories mm -hmm. and collecting the photos, right? And and it's it just – it does require staff time that we just simply didn't have. Because the 20% is easier. That's uh, the problem. Mm -hmm, right. And so you kind of want to – and this goes back to all sorts of brand storytelling, the 80-20 rule, right? The 20% being – well, we can talk about ourselves all day, but it is those extra interviews that you conduct or podcasts that you start or YouTube mm -hmm. series that you commence that really make up the 80 and make it entertaining. So when you're trying to tell stories about the artists within our community – what have you found resonates with Erie citizens about their artist base or about particular artists? Does that does that question make sense? Yeah, I, I think with everything, something that challenges your expectations or assumptions are uh, much appreciated and typically gravitated towards. I also think similarly, um, those stories that do have an emotional impact associated with them. You know, there's there's plenty of individuals in our community that have 
overcome or are still working to overcome great adversity uh, in their lives and recognizing um, the efforts that they've made, the accomplishments that they've achieved, but still the the obstacles that they've have faced or continue to face, I think resonate with people. Um, you know, I think of stories like Antonio Howard's are one that mm-hmm. resonate closely with our community. I think that people continue to appreciate the stories that are being told around our new American artists in our mm-hmm. community and the culture bearers in our community. So I think that those ones are the ones that tend to grasp people's attentions the quickest and keeps them the longest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our goal is really, you know, we will always support every organization and every individual in our community. But if you already have a platform, you're probably not the story that we're gravitating to first simply because you have something right now, right? Mm -hmm. How are we taking an equitable approach to this and really thinking about those artists, those organizations that historically haven't received the same level of of support and attention as maybe some of our our larger or more established individuals and organizations and thinking about how do we build your capacity so that through this process you're learning and then you can think about how can you apply it yourself either through your staff, through your board, through your supporters, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Can you just break down a little more of the relationship between Erie Arts and Culture and other smaller – you, you, you keep referencing like working with other organizations of the city or making them aware of the arts or making them aware of the arts connection to activism. How does Erie Arts and Culture work with other organizations in the city? Yeah, so we are what referred to as a regional arts agency. We actually serve six counties in northwestern Pennsylvania, which I think is a little-known fact. And – When trying to use terms that others might understand, it's like we are to um, the creative and cultural sector what the Chamber of Commerce is to the business sector, right? As it relates to individuals and organizations in our community, we're really a capacity builder. Historically, we would have referred to ourselves solely as a grant maker. But in truth, grant making is such a small portion of what we do on a day-to-day basis. So we're really working with individuals and organizations that are using the arts and humanities to serve the broader community. And we're saying, where are you at? Where do you want to go? And what are either the constraints, obstacles, or opportunities that you're facing right now? And how do we help you strategically make a plan around that? Some of that strategy may include funding, which can come through our grants. Some of it may actually just be sitting down and like talking through things together. You know, I consider myself uh, what I'll say is like a step builder where if you're on the first floor and you want to get up to the second floor, I'm pretty good at being able to help you build the the steps to Mm -hmm. get from one floor to the next. But what I often find in conversations with, with folks is they're on the first floor and they're aiming for the fourth floor. And it's like, well, how about we just try to get to the second floor first, Mm -hmm. right? And then once we're at the second floor, here's the third floor. And then let's get up to the fourth floor. And how do you prioritize what your needs are based off of just getting up to the second floor first? Um, So so our role as an organization is as a support service. We are there to support individuals and organizations so that they in turn are better equipped to support their stakeholders, their audiences, their communities. And that, I think, is why a lot of people in Erie haven't historically had either a relationship with or knowledge of Erie arts and culture, even though we've been around since 1960. Um, Mind you, under certain different names like the Arts Council of Erie and Arts Erie, because we've been operating behind the scenes. 
Whereas I think now we're, especially through like the placemaking initiatives we've been doing, yeah, uh, we're, about, we're sure. a lot more, I think, in people's, I think, attention and, and uh, people have a little bit more brand awareness around us now. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, you can obviously exclude names and everything, but what's, what's an example of taking an organization from first floor to second floor, just to kind of give people a clearer picture of that assistance. Yeah, we're we're doing it right now. We have a creative entrepreneur accelerator program. That's a grant program for um, creative entrepreneurs and either individuals that are working to start a for-profit business or have a for-profit business and they're looking to either take that next step or find a way to sustain it. And a lot of what we've been doing is actually business planning documents with them, Mm. asking them, okay, how do, if you had an elevator pitch of who you are, like one paragraph or, or less, how do you describe what you do to others who don't already know, right? What are three measurable goals you'd like to accomplish in the next year? Based off of that, what are three constraints you're currently facing that prevent you from achieving those goals? And then asking if you had resources, how would you use those resources to specifically overcome those constraints, right? Because one of the things that we would find is someone would say, okay, here's my challenge. And you say, okay, and then go, I want funding. But what they want funding for is so completely unrelated to the challenge they're facing that it's like you could throw all that money at that thing that you just wanted to, but that challenge that you just identified is still present. So right, how yeah. are you prioritizing your resources and your time and other things? So we've been sitting down with um, individuals like uh, – I'll use Andre Jones as an example. Andre to me is doing some of the most exciting work around fashion design and apparel in Erie. And I think that he kind of operates under the radar. He's got a company called Rabbit3. Uh, he's an Edinburgh graduate. Mm-hmm. And if you look at his designs, it's almost like futurism meets – um, municipal work gear, right? It's this idea of like, it, it's almost if you ever saw like 1980s, like snowmobile aesthetic, mm. which was like this, like really futuristic, a lot of neons and bright colors mixed with things from like the fifth element or <laughs> other kind of movies like that. Yeah, yeah. That's this space that Andre's operating in right now. And I think his work is really, really incredible. It's stuff that I wish I had the confidence to wear, uh, but working with him to figure out, okay, what are your goals? How do we get you there? How do we, how do we, you know, build up what you're doing? Um, so meeting with him and not just once, but like on a reoccurring basis, my, the way I work with individuals and organizations is one, anybody is worth an hour of my time. Even if what you're requesting is not part of Erie Arts and Culture's central mission, if I can better understand what you're asking, I should be better able to connect you with someone who actually can be of service. And what I think often happens is not everybody is always a good shepherd. So when someone says, hey, I have this problem or this, they just go, not my problem, right? Or they they don't listen fully and they as a result of it they don't know who to connect them to etc so people get frustrated because they go well, I tried to utilize the resources that are available to me and I got shut down right so I believe that anybody is worth an hour of my time and for those individuals that do fall within the purview of our work thinking about how do we use this time to leave with actionable items and the way you earn another hour of my time is you do the actionable items and mm-hmm. and we then schedule that next meeting once those actionable items are complete. And if I go a month without hearing from you, I will follow up with you and say, where are you at with those items, right? Mm-hmm. Do you need assistance? Do you have any questions, right? What can we do to get you to complete that work, right? So really having this like 
real personal intimate relationship with the folks that we're working with and making sure that we are cultivating them fully as opposed to saying, well, we met once, we gave them this, our, our role is done now. Um, because I think that things like grant applications or grant reports or other things can be super intimidating. And, you know, if you've never done that process before, you might not know how to approach it. You might not know the language that you should be utilizing to be competitive in it. You know, this idea of active writing versus passive writing, mm -hmm. right? Again, it comes back down to impact storytelling. And I think that these are all things that we can impart on individuals and organizations as we work with them. But I also work with people on a, that aren't related to our sector. So like Taiwan has a company called Career and Dreams, and he's focused on building an organization that does non-traditional youth development and thinking about how do you engage youth around career opportunities if they're not necessarily going to college after high school, um, but even if they are going to college. And looking with him about, okay, Send your solicitation letters to me. I'll take a look at them and I'll provide feedback. You know, um, send me the way you refer to your organization and talk about it and I'll provide feedback. And, and always saying like, what I provide you is not the answer. It's just an option. It's, it's feedback. At the end of the day, it's up to you whether or not you want to adopt it. Um, don't just do it because I say it. But looking at, you know, that, I guess, holistic approach to, to building capacity. Let's have a few more of the uh, Erie Arts and Culture Pillars. Another one of your core philosophy, uh, core philosophies, I would say, is that you want to spotlight activism within the art world. You know, you use terms like uh, social character when explaining how artists can contribute to a community. And then you also just recently presented with Edinburgh's own Dr. Rhonda Matthews something called arts activism, the effects creativity and culture can have on policy and power. So uh, if you could just talk more about that relationship and kind of, again, where you see eerie arts and culture in that relationship. Yeah. So, you know, the arts are a spectrum, right? From things that are just studio-based and intended to be commodified to things that are an occurring at like a community or street level and intended to be about, uh, I guess, reflecting aspirations and identities back to the community. I think that far too often um, individuals of all ages find themselves silenced for one reason or another. And I certainly felt that way as a teenager, right? Like, oh, your values, uh, you're just, you're too young. You don't know. You don't have enough life experience yet. You're uneducated, whatever the case may be. But again, the world I grew up in with the punk and hardcore community, art was an equalizer, right? No one is going to mm -hmm. stop you in the middle of a song and be like, silence, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, unless you're at the hangout and you cussed, then you might get your mics cut. Uh <laughs> But I, I saw... Wait, was that, was that a thing? Yeah, you oh, couldn't yeah. cuss at the hangout. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, did it yeah. have like a religious yeah, backing? Yeah, it was Christian. Yeah, oh, I didn't yeah. Know that. But I'd say, you know, Rick Scaletta is on my board mm -hmm. and was Fantastic on the board that person. hired me. Yeah. And one of the things I did was thank him, right? Like, yeah. you have no idea who I am. You don't know me as the teenager that went there. But like that played a very important role in who I am today. And like, you didn't have to do the things you did. Like, Rick was at almost every single oh, show absolutely. and and you know there like, were times I, mean, I, I was in a i was in a band with them 
Yeah. There was times that he had Super, to get up. Superintendent of GM? Yeah. Or yeah, former yeah. now? Yeah. Yeah. At the time, I don't he think he was superintendent, player. right? No, At the time, it was just musical. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, chorus you know, there were times that he'd have to get up on stage and remind people like, hey, no fighting or no cussing. But other than that, <laughs> it, like. It wasn't really like heavy handed. Though. No, yeah, yeah, he yeah, gave yeah. us a lot yeah. of free oh, reign. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like oh, you yeah. wouldn't know that there were chaperones there, truthfully, even though there were chaperones there. Like We're going to have to get him on the show and talk about the bands that he met and <laughs> some of his interactions. Yeah, I'm I sure think, he's got some stories. I think that that would be an interesting approach because he's probably talked to so much as, you know, the former superintendent of GM, but thinking about a person that was responsible for providing such an important space to so many teenagers really? and, and, and youth in our community. I don't know if anybody's ever sat down and interviewed him about that. So that'd be a really interesting mm -hmm. angle. But, you know, so for me, Art always had this like, underlying activism associated with it. And so as an adult, when I think about the change that should be happening within our communities for us to become the version of ourselves that we say we want to be, I think the arts can hold ourselves honest to that, right? To me, the great thing about art is that it is intended to reflect back to you the present moment. And to remind you of like perspectives outside of your own. And, and you know, I, I don't always have the most popular opinions, but like I, I remember when I first moved here and I was talking to folks and having conversations with them, I would ask them like, do you make art or do you make decoration? Hmm. Let's talk about that. Do you make art or do you make entertainment? Right? Because to me, decoration and entertainment are intended to be something that allows you to clock out. Right? Hmm. Whereas art really is intended to like grip you and make you really think, right? Mm -hmm. So having that conversation with people and, and I think that there's room for all of it, right? It's not one or the other. It's not a one size fits all approach. It really is a spectrum. But I think that art can really be a powerful tool. And that's one of the things that I think I'd love to see change here in Erie is I think that Erie has had a really heavy mentality of apathy right? We can't make change in our community because of X, Y, and Z, where I think the artists that I've lived and worked with in other communities have a sense of agency and urgency around their work and recognize that it is a powerful tool in positioning things for conversation and then reminding uh, policymakers around those things and not letting people escape it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so whether it's the written word, uh, performance, um, or, or visual work, I think there's an ability to really convey a message and have a conversation that otherwise we might try to avoid. Gotcha. Talk to, talk to our audience of just about placemaking, uh, you know, if you want to define it first and then go into how you've advanced that pillar in particular. Yeah, so my approach to it or what has drawn me to it is how do we create emotional bonds between people and the places and spaces that they occupy? I think that a, an important part of placemaking is that it's a democratic act and it's a participatory act. It doesn't happen to communities. It happens with communities. You know, you can't just dump something on somebody and say, well, hmm. we've got resources and this is what we're giving you. Um, you actually saw pushback around, I think it was in Michigan a couple years ago. There was a, a well-intended organization that had funding, 
and they wanted to plant trees in the community because they had data that showed that trees are uh, important to creating an aesthetic and a quality of life, mm -hmm. uh, but also they provide good environmental impact in neighborhoods as well. So they went through and they planted all of these trees in, in, in uh, communities that uh, were under-resourced. And people got really upset, um, not because they don't like trees, not because they don't want trees, but because they weren't engaged in the process. They weren't asked even what types of trees would you like to see. They weren't given a list of options. They weren't asked to help plant them. It just one day they woke up and there were trees, right? So I think that one of the things that we all have to be mindful of as we go about placemaking is that it is intended to be this participatory act and that you really have to resource the community in asking, okay, what do you want to see? How do you want to build a sense of place? What are the places that you want to have activated that aren't presently activated? What are spaces that you wish you had access to that you don't feel you have access to? What are spaces that you have that you want to invite others into, right? These, these conversations have to occur more frequently and more, I think, authentically and fluidly. But for me, when I was looking at where Erie was at before I moved back, I said, okay, Erie's trying to attract all this financial investment. If they want to have a financial investment, there has to be an emotional investment. And when you think about the places that you visit and that you go to and that you have memorable experiences about, it's often sense of place and aesthetic and what you have to do recreationally that is memorable to you, right? It's the art you engaged with, the architecture you engaged with, the green spaces and pathways and parks that you engaged with, the food you had to eat, right? The Whatever the case may be, that is all placemaking, right? Mm -hmm. It is developing a sense of place and identity and belonging more than, more importantly than anything, that sense of belonging. And I think that that's the biggest challenge we face in Erie is that we don't have good places for people to come together, both in the built environment and the natural environment. You know, a lot of our socializing and, and recreating seems to occur in bars, churches, or bowling alleys historically. And those things tend to be heavily divided based off of race, heritage, identity, et cetera. So there's not a lot of spaces for people of diverse backgrounds and diverse lived experiences to come together and have shared experiences organically. But when you think about events like Celebrate Erie, Blues and Jazz Festival, those are some of our best examples of using space to bring people together from diverse perspectives, experiences, right. interests, et cetera. But how do you make that so it's not just these one-off occurrences or things that only occur in the summertime, mm -hmm. right? Like that has to be a part of everyday life in every neighborhood and in every community, um, not just in the city, but throughout the county. You know, mm -hmm. I think that Corey's actually doing some really phenomenal work right now yeah. through Impact Corey around developing a sense of place in their downtown through their business district, through their um, rehabilitation of parks and, and railways. Um, so I don't think it just is limited to the city. It's really throughout the entire region mm -hmm. yeah chuck gray the all-star yeah she's, she's she's awesome i don't i don't know if there's many people i've met that have as much like spunk and energy as chuck does uh because i know that like i'm never not tired and i look at chuck <laughs> and i'm just like you might also be tired but you don't let anybody know like you just have this like you look like you just drank 10 red bulls she has unlimited bandwidth yeah. Which is ironic given what they're trying to do oh, with the yeah, internet yeah. down yeah. there. So okay. um as a non eerie eerieite, 
have you um have you talked to the frogs to death with people Oof. like is yeah. that just like a not not to like dive into the frogs because i'm sure that's like a black hole of discussion right mm. but does everybody ask you about them? So I think it's really important to first recognize the role that the frogs and the fish played and the, the role that similar initiatives played throughout the United States. One, you know, I want to recognize David Seitzinger, an Erie based artist that came up with that design. And then it's too long to recognize every single artist or business Mm -hmm. that contributed to that initiative. But at that time that served a really great purpose of getting people to remember Erie's pedestrian scale and that you can actually walk. And you actually had individuals and families that made it a point to walk throughout Erie or drive throughout Erie to see each one of those sculptures. Mm -hmm. And in return, how are they supporting the businesses potentially where those sculptures are located? Or how are they learning about the artists that are responsible for those sculptures? I think they served a really great purpose in the 90s and early 2000s. But When you make an investment in art, you have to also be making an investment around a plan for maintenance. And I think a lot of times public art isn't properly maintained or there's no conversation around what is the lifespan that is intended for this work. Mm -hmm. And once that lifespan is reached, how are we deassessing this work? Because I'm a firm believer that the visual landscape should consistently evolve and change based off of how populations are evolving and changing, based off of how the built environment is evolving and changing, based off of the interests and aspirations and how people come together. So I think that those works played a really important part in getting people to think about an investment in public art in Erie. We have to meet people where they're at. So when someone talks to me about that initiative, I try not to let out the gasp that I just let out on on air here, (laughs) but really start to ask more probing questions. Well, what is it about that initiative that resonated with you? Why did you like it, right? What do you think the next evolution of something like that would be? Hoping that they don't go, I don't know, trout, right? Like (laughs) we aren't going frogs, fishes, trout, like trying to think through what the next wave of it is. And then asking them, well, have you done the sculpture walk initiative that is intended to achieve the same objective, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and really starting to have questions more about thinking about public art more, I don't know, completely, I guess you could say. So I, I am appreciative that people have that emotional connection to that, that, um, initiative Mm -hmm. and I'm appreciative of everything that it, it, uh, accomplished, but I want people to go to other cities and see what other communities are doing around both permanent and temporary public art and thinking about how do we integrate that here in Erie, especially if we're a community that is really trying to push innovation. Mm-hmm. Art mm-hmm. in public spaces is a great way to yeah. communicate innovation. But simply doing what we did 20 years ago is not innovative and it doesn't actually brand us as, as a region that is thinking innovatively. Yeah. Uh, I suppose black hole of discussion was probably a bad term for me to use. I just meant like it's never ending. It seems like it just keeps coming up and coming up and coming I, up. I at least I, once a week have someone talking yeah, about that's their what love I figured. of it. Yeah. That's what I figured. Uh, <laughs> let's hit on some current things that Erie Arts and Culture are doing right now. Um, let's talk about your visiting artist, Christina. And mm-hmm. I, do you have two visiting artists or just one? We or? just have one right now. Okay. Our next artist, uh, so Christina's here for the month of April. She leaves at the end of the month. And then the second week of May, our next artist, Lauren, comes in and she'll be coming from Hawaii. Okay. 
Cool. So just if you want to talk about Christina and then what Lauren's going to be bringing to the community next. Yeah. So this is almost the, this is the third year we've administered this program. We launched it right before the pandemic. Uh, Literally, we launched it in January of 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the pandemic happened, but we still successfully managed to bring in, I think, six visiting artists that first year. I'm proud to say that every single visiting artist that comes here says that this program completely ruins them for all future residencies because (laughs) the level of care and support and service and access they receive here is so different than any other residency they've ever done. And, and that is always my intention. I know that, you know, when you have residencies at really prestigious institutions or cities or parks, I know that Erie, Pennsylvania is not necessarily jumping out as this, like, I have to come to this program, especially when you have other opportunities that you're weighing it against. So knowing that we don't have necessarily brand recognition, treating artists really well is important to me. It's the same thing we did with the Sculpture Walk initiative. I made sure that the package that existed for artists was one of the most competitive packages across the nation so that folks would want to participate in it, that they would have a positive experience around it. So with our residency program, it's really about how do we bring folks in so that there can be cross-pollination between um, the artists we bring in and the community that exists here? Um, How do we collaborate with um, local organizations and institutions uh, and also industry. We've had several artists that have worked with uh, manufacturers while they've been here Mm. because they had access to processes that they didn't have access to in their home studio. Uh, And then the work that they made here ended up being exhibited outside of here um, as far away as Dubai. Uh, And it was stuff that was made here in Erie. So it's been a really exciting program. um, And I think that it is one that uh, I hope continues to evolve uh, and, and and really thinking through like our partnerships and the community engagement aspect. Uh, with Christina, she's been doing some um, really great work while she's here. She's doing a, an addition. So one of the um, deliverables for our residency is the time is yours, but you are expected to engage with our community and you're expected to create an addition while you're here. All of the additions, almost all of them have been created in partnership with Edinburgh University, um, primarily through their printmaking department. So we've worked with um, Bill and Doug and Kat down there. Kat is a a MFA student to create those additions, which are then sold and 50% of it goes to the artist and 50% of it feeds back into the program to fund future residencies. With Christina's though, she's doing a three-dimensional object that's ceramic. So she's working with Jaden in the ceramics department, who's an MFA student. Mm. Um, And her addition, I think, will probably be 10 objects. Um, but she's also handmaking another edition um, of 50 objects. She really focuses on um, stories of migration and identity and loss and grief and trauma and politics uh, through her work. She utilizes a number of different mediums, whether it's two-dimensional, sculptural, performance, sound. Um, but one of the mediums that she consistently has been working with are um, foods that I think oftentimes are you know, foods that uh, those that are living in, in impoverished circumstances or migratory circumstances are eating and valuing. So like beans, um, mm. date pits, um, olive pits, etc. And she uses those objects to either sew them into sculptural form or use them for printmaking. 
so she's been working on on those. Um, she's also working on a sound installation that will be exhibited, I think, next year, mm. and it's starting here in Erie. So she's actually working at Community Access Media and collecting stories of migration. So, so far, she's met with um, new Americans from Mongolia, from India, from Bosnia, but she has conversations um, scheduled with immigrants from um, other areas as well, folks that came here by choice or folks that came here as refugees. Um, but she's collecting all those stories to to um, turn them into a sound installation. Hmm. Uh, she's also maintaining a studio space at Grounded Print and Paper Studio where folks can come in and do a studio visit with her. Um, so that's what she's doing with uh, Lauren. She is also working on a, a project that's going to have her working with community access media. So not to tell too much of her own personal story, but when she was 11, her mother disappeared. So she's now working on a series that is investigating like that type of, I think, feeling and emotion mm -hmm. of associated with lost. So while she's here, she's going to be doing um, video interviews with individuals who had someone disappear from their life. Not necessarily all nefarious circumstances. Maybe there's this teacher I had and then one day the teacher disappeared and I never knew what became of them, right? Um, but these stories of like uh, loss that was significant to you, disappearance that was significant to you, and based off of the stories that she's collecting, which will then be a video installation, she's also going to do paintings around what she imagines this person, this subject to look like now. Um, she's also going to do – she's Korean or of Korean descent, I should say. And she's also going to focus on uh, a ritual that is a tradition of uh, Korea that focuses on um, kind of loss and rebirth. So I think she's also going to do some type of public performance that is like a ritual and tradition of like her um, interpretation of this like traditional Korean um, ceremony. So uh, I think, you know, all of our artists come here for three to four weeks at a time. And I think one of the things that inevitably happens is that the time passes much quicker than what they realize, but they also have access to a lot more than maybe what they imagined. So then like trying to really prioritize, like, how do I use my time? How do I make sure I get the most out of this experience? Um, but it's been great. I mean, Doug Eberhardt is somebody we've worked with on our editions and mm -hmm. some of our artists have, even after uh, their residency has concluded, have utilized Doug for printing services to mm -hmm. continue editions. So we see a lot of relationship building between our artists and, and our visiting artists. I got one more question and then we do a quick thing at the end. So okay. we'll get you out of here quick. Um, so I've asked this question to a few of our art-centric guests here on Flagship. So I'm going to ask you to tell us about someone or someone's uh, who's a little lesser known, perhaps someone who's perhaps underrated in or around the art scene, an unsung hero of the art scene. I know it might be hard for you to keep it to one. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's like couple if you that's want. my challenge. Is like I have I have the privilege of so much access and so much knowledge around the folks that live in this region and do great work. And I'm going to limit my response to particularly folks in this region, even though I could go on and on about the folks that are outside of this region that I really get excited about. But I'm going to mention a few. One, I already talked about Andre Jones. I think what Andre Jones is doing with Rabbit 3 is really exciting. It's an aesthetic that we're not used to seeing, I think, in Erie. Uh, and, and I, and I want to push greater aesthetics. I think that we sometimes have this like rustic, traditional fall colors, earth tones, mm -hmm. rusty things, right? And I think that what Andre's doing is like completely outside of that. So I'd say Andre Jones is an un unsung hero that's doing really interesting things. And if folks haven't, they should look up Rabbit 3 
uh, on social media. Esther Ortiz is also, mm -hmm. I think, doing really remarkable work. Um, Esther is a self-taught pinata artist that makes come up a couple times. Yeah, both sure. contemporary as well as traditional forms. You know, I met Esther about three years ago, and at that time, I think she had been working in uh, pinata for maybe one to two years. And in that time since, seeing the way she's scaled her work and approached it almost more sculpturally um, mm. is really, really interesting. And the way she continues to challenge herself to me is so exciting. And the thing that I think is important about Esther is the fact that she is she has a daily practice. That's one of the things that I think artists in our region need to really contemplate more is what is their daily practice. Mm -hmm. You can't just make work when inspiration strikes or when an opportunity arises, you need to be making work daily. You need to be pushing yourself daily. You need to be exploring mediums and materials and concepts and thoughts and approaches daily because that's how you build the muscle, right? Mm. It's not like I go to the gym only when I have uh, an opportunity to flex my muscles in front of somebody. I go to the gym daily because it makes me stronger. And I don't think that enough artists in our community are going to their creative gyms daily. And that needs to change. Yeah. So I, I really applaud Esther for, for her daily practice and what she's been accomplishing as a result of flexing that muscle. Um, I think Mabel Howard and what she's been doing around poetry and uh, the spoken word is remarkable. The way she has built a community and an audience mm -hmm. around her weekly open mic events mm -hmm. and the fact that she's getting so many first timers to come up and allow themselves to be vulnerable and to share their original works with others in the room cannot go unacknowledged. I mean, that is a scary, intimidating thing. And she's creating a space where people feel safe and supported to do that. And I think that the way she's approaching that, especially knowing that Mabel wears like 27 other hats in the community, but she's still making time to do that on a weekly basis, I think is is really, really remarkable. I'll also say like not to, when does this air? Uh, it'll probably be about a week or so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we have consulted on a public art project for the Erie County Redevelopment Authority. And there's three artist teams that uh, were awarded stipends to develop site-specific proposals. And two of the teams, two of the three teams have never created public art in Erie or haven't created work together as a team in Erie. And I think that what I saw as a sneak peek from... Jessica Taylor and Brad Triana makes me really excited about the way that their brains Excellent. are working together and the way that they're thinking about public art and integrating mm -hmm. um, multi-sensory experiences into public art and doing work that is activated both during the day and the night um, cool. and is just really compelling. So even though there hasn't been anything that's been physically created by them yet, the prototypes that I've seen uh, and the descriptions they've used to talk about their concept and their approach is really exciting to me. So I'd also say uh, Jessica Taylor and Brad Triana as a, as a public art duo mm -hmm. and a future public art duo Excellent. is really exciting. Cool. So we always finish with what we call our tour of Erie. And these are just quick fire, first thing you think of Oof. type of questions. So no, no pressure. We can always edit it down. So it makes it seem like you, you know, said it right away. So you're good. Uh, friends are in town for one night. Where are you taking them to dinner? 
Oof. It's funny because if you talk to my friends, they're all going to they know this answer before I even answer <laughs> it. But I've been vegan for 15 years mm-hmm. and uh, Erie is not the most vegan friendly no. city. So my typical go to not because I necessarily love it, but because it's very vegan friendly is Mad Mex. Uh, right. I also have a little bit of nostalgia of Mad Mex from being from like, yeah, yeah, going to shows in Pittsburgh and Mad Mex in Pittsburgh. Going it used to be midnight. half off after nine yep. o'clock. Eerie I thought it was after midnight. Was it after midnight? Yeah, I thought it was crazy. after nine. But either way, they used to have yeah, a half right. off. Yeah. Erie doesn't after have that shows, same. Yep, yep. But I do think that they probably have some of the best tofu in town. So it's not as though I love going to the mall or going to, to regional chains, but they do have some of the best vegan options in Erie. And if not there, probably Jekyll and Hyde. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite cup of coffee in the city if you drink coffee? Yeah, I'm a huge coffee consumer and I've, I've got to go with Ember and Forge. I think that's 100%. We, we, we need to take them off the list. They're, I think that's 100%. I, think. <laughs> I will say this. you it's know, a, It's if, also if, a great answer. If I, yeah. Well, going and for an unsung hero then, I think that what Dina Rupp is doing around Parista oh, yeah. is right. awesome. I think they have great coffee there. I love that they have dandelion tea there. But I also think she's done, you know, her being a graphic designer and, and being so focused on aesthetics, the design of that place is mm-hmm. phenomenal. And I think that one thing that sometimes happens in Erie is when you are a new boot business and you move into a space, Space, you often have the aesthetics and feel of whatever the space previous oh, was. Yeah. You don't really focus on making that investment. Mm-hmm. And Dina did it right. Like mm-hmm. you step in there and it's like this Instagrammable moment as a, you know, oh, whatever. Yeah. So I think that, you know, Ember and Forge will always have my heart, but I'll say runner up, uh, Parista. Gotcha. Uh, what's the shop store in Erie where you find yourself browsing? Like just kind of walking Krause's. around. Krauses. Uh, I used to live on 7th and German and it was great because anytime I needed something for the house, like I could just walk around the corner and you end up getting kind of just like consumed (laughs) by like everything that's in there from like cast iron and crock pots to lighting and other electrical things to (laughs) the, um, you know, hardware and uh, tools they have and just the creak of the floor as you're walking through certain areas and everybody's always so friendly there. Krause's is probably one of the only stores that I think I find myself actively browsing in Erie. Cool. Uh, Last one, uh, a new business you want to shout out, maybe one that opened in the last couple of years. Yeah, well, I think think Parista was probably uh, a good answer for that question, so I wish I would have saved it. Should have warned (laughs) you. But um, other than that, new businesses that are opening up, I mean, I think that, I think that, I've had a few things done by Louis the tailor at Primo Tailoring, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and I think that that's a nice service to have um, downtown and to be able to walk over and have something taken in or hemmed uh, is really nice. Um, I think there's some solid food options within the the food hall, but you know, with both of those, they probably have a lot of the marketing support around EDDC. So I'm trying to think deeper about new businesses that are opening up that might not have all of that marketing support. I'm I'm gonna go back to Parista. I think what Dina's doing there is is super exciting, and and she deserves that that support and recognition. Flagship Stories is a collaborative podcast between the Edinburgh Beehive and the Erie Reader. You can find the Edinburgh Beehive at nwpabeehive.com, where you'll get information on our broader network. 
And you can find the Ear Reader and, you know, my stuff at earreader.com. Or you can pick up the actual issue and hold it in your hands free around the region. Uh, and if you need help, you know, finding a copy, go to earreader.com slash distribution. You can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at flagshipeerie at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.